0: Welcome to Inside the BACB, the official podcast of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inside the BACB. I am Dr. Melissa Nosek, the Deputy CEO at the BACB, and I'm excited to be here with you again for another episode Today we are going to be talking about myths and misconceptions about BACB examinations. Uh, so in this podcast, we will address some common myths and misconceptions about exam development. We will touch on specific myths about the BCBA and BCABA exams, we'll be giving you a peek inside our exam development process and debunking those examination misconceptions, And. For this special episode, I've asked Kyle Jordan, the BACB's Director of Testing and Accreditation, to join me. Kyle, um, for those people that don't know you yet, could you give us a little bit of your background and your role at the BACB?
1: I surely can. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Kyle Jordan. I'm the Director of Testing and Accreditation here at the BACB, and I've been with the organization for two years. And I've had the privilege of experiencing the incredible growth in the applied behavior analysis profession, firsthand. So, I'm so, I, it's such a blessing to be here and to work with all of you. My role at the BACB is to lead a team that maintains the credential programs. The testing team has individual staff who manage each credential or certification program, the subject matter experts who provide content and guidance on the decisions, plus, manage the psychometrician consultants who assist with statistical and reporting oversight. So it's a pleasure to be here and be a part of the programs and this organization.
0: Well, welcome. Very excited. Um, Thanks for all that you bring to the BACB. I thought, don't laugh, but I thought we would start because we are going to mention this professional title psychometrician multiple times today. So I thought for our listeners who don't just hang around and think about Testing and assessment on their evenings and weekends that we might share with them what a psychometrician is and what they do. Do you want to share that with us?
1: I'd love to. That question does come up a lot. A psychometrician is someone who practices the science of educational and psychological measurement, or in other words, testing measurement. Psychometrician understands the steps that are required to develop fair, valid, and reliable examinations, and those are key words. They also guide the process for creating the exams at several pivotal points in the development process, but they don't provide actual content. That comes from our subject matter experts. Psychometricians also facilitate job task analyses conduct standard-setting studies, and conduct mini-data analyses for our programs.
0: Essentially, they're testing nerds, and we are big fans of the nerds around the VACB, so it's really (laughs) fun to work with those peeps.
1: I wear Uh, that badge proudly.
0: (laughs) Yes, for sure. So, okay. So in addition to psychometricians who are responsible for the things that you mentioned and a lot of the formal processes for um, equating, validating, maintaining certification program examinations, there's a rest of the team that aren't our psychometricians, but they support our certification programs and the examination, maintenance, and um, processes. Could you talk a little bit about the team and what that looks like in our examination department?
1: I can. Yes, the rest of the testing team fits into our process in several important ways. So for each certification program, we have a program manager and a program coordinator. The managers work with our psychometrician consultants to plan needed exam development activities for the year. For example, how many new questions need to be written for a program? How many new questions need to be reviewed for a program? How many meetings should we hold to have all of that take place in a timely manner? The coordinators then work on making all of the arrangements for these meetings and these decisions. They invite our subject matter experts to attend, as well as plan the travel and the logistics, everything getting uh, the subject matter experts to our office to conduct this work.
0: Ooh, as a note, uh, a lot of our SMEs, our SMEs, report that, like, Coming out to the BACB for their uh, for the testing meetings is like one of the most fun things. So uh, I love that we focus so much on making it a good experience for them. Or your team does that for us. Thank I, you. I
1: hope they feel that way. It's certainly our goal to have them feel like they are a part of the team because they certainly are. Uh, the managers and coordinators on our team they also manage the item bank. So, for example, making assignments within the item bank platform for item writing committees and item review committees. And they also help ensure that our item statuses are all updated correctly. The managers and coordinators also help with proofreading new exam forms during each testing cycle, which is very important. It's always helpful to have fresh eyes to check things out during that publishing cycle.
0: That's really helpful. So we have put together the top seven myths and misconceptions about BACB certification exams. Most of them stem from people just not being exposed to the process for developing a professional credential examination. So, Kyle, do you want to kick us off with your first favorite myth?
1: I can. There are quite a few. The first myth, though, is that the BACB made up the process for exam development. And that is certainly not true. I mean, I kind of wish we could take credit for that, but we cannot. We cannot. You know, the process is used by pretty much every library and certification program around the world. And in fact, there are industry standards that we must follow. And adhering to these standards ensures that we follow best practice in the industry. So we actually undergo a third-party audit with the program's accrediting body, NCCA, as you mentioned, to verify that compliance.
0: You know, something that was surprising to me when um, I began learning about the certification industry years ago was that the certification industry processes and procedures, they are tried and true. They synthesize employment law, they synthesize um, Supreme Court rulings and like, those standards and requirements are informed by a lot of different sources. And that is the point at which NCCA makes them sort of the standard for all certification exams and programs.
1: Truly. And it is very eye-opening when you do peek behind the curtain a little bit. Yeah. And again, I understand most of the listeners today, they have not had the experience or, you know, maybe the privilege to kind of peek behind the curtain in that in sort of way. But These standards are very, very pivotal, very intense, very granular. There's Mm -hmm. a lot that goes into this oversight, and compliance is definitely um, important for our department.
0: In comparison, too, this is the same process that other high-stakes exams use, for example, the U.S. medical licensure exam.
1: That's very true. That's very true. Other myths, though, and just to transition to our next uh, group or our next identified myth, is that we have heard that many people think that the BACB staff write all of our (laughs) questions. And to all of our listeners, just given the number of questions we use each year, it is simply just not possible for one person or department or staff to write them all. You know, we rely on our subject matter experts to write and review our questions. Entire committees in 2019 and 2020 helped with this task. As a matter of fact, it was over 100 people. So Mm -hmm. lots of hands are involved, lots of people.
0: Yeah, uh, so true. Uh, I'm amazed. So your managers right now are in the process of staffing the committees that will come on board in 2021. And I think for the upcoming committees, because we have every year, you know, besides the examination committees, we have job task analysis committees and sometimes extra committees. So I think this coming year we have like one hundred and fifty at least different SMEs uh, that we are going to be recruiting. So huge numbers. And hopefully we'll get to do some of those meetings in person um, in the coming year.
1: Fingers crossed. And we are very thankful for the engagement. And it could not be more thankful and appreciative of all of the individuals who really you know, take interest in participating in these programs. And it's just, it's very special to see, and I'm very appreciative for anyone who reaches out and who has an yeah. interest in with our team.
0: Well, especially since in 2020, due to the pandemic, there, many of um, the activities of our SMEs have been done remotely, mm-hmm. so, which typically it's an in-person experience. So very thankful for them for doing that. Okay, I'm going to jump into a third misconception that I've heard, and that is that the BCBA and BCABA exams are the same, except for the BCBA exam has 20 extra questions. Well, that is not true, for sure. Um, our SME committees, I, I can see why people might think that there is overlap, but it is actually really important that um, the BCBA certification program and then the assistance uh, BCABA certification program are completely separate. And um, while there are a lot of similar skills, you might think that an assistant behavior analyst and behavior analysts do, um, they need to have knowledge of the information at different levels. Um, SMEs are provided with a lot of training, and they serve two-year terms because of the complexity involved in ensuring consistency in their writing and revision activities on BCABA committees versus BCBA committees. And certainly for some content, like I mentioned, there's going to be some similar questions, but each set of certification program has their own SME committees, and they have their own separate item banks, and those things do not overlap between the two programs.
1: True. And that reminds me of the fourth myth, which I'd like to mention. And that relates to candidate comments about test items. Uh We get a lot of comments and it seems that like candidates think that we grade these comments. So even if they were to pick a wrong answer, you know, they hypothetically might think that they could get some extra points if they write a really good explanation in the comments. Yeah. That's just not how it works. If we get a lot of comments about a particular question, we certainly take a look at it, and we discuss it with our subject matter experts, and those experts might decide to retire the question. They might decide to fix the question. But comments do not affect an individual candidate's exam score. If something was really wrong with a question, then statistics would lead the process, and we would rescore that question for all candidates.
0: Yeah, uh, a lot of our SMEs that attend some of the revision meetings particularly, our SMEs rely so heavily on data and stats, like behavior analysts really dig that activity. So if you haven't yet filled out your application to be an SME, um, definitely is a fun activity and you learn yeah. a little bit. Too.
1: It is, and as I typically say, test development is truly a perfect mix of art and science. So ah, I
0: like that. It
1: is please, if you have an interest in both, it's it's for you. I promise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, so that reminds me of a fifth misconception. Uh, people have said that some questions have more than one right answer. Each question is designed to have only one correct best answer. Uh, Sometimes there are subtle discriminations that must be made to identify the best answer. And candidates who don't really fully understand the content often aren't able to make those discriminations. So if you think about it this way, a question's job is to distinguish between candidates, even when there are only subtle differences, and identify who really understands the content from those who don't yet fully understand it. For those people, it might indeed look like there are two or more really good answers, but only one will be better than the others.
1: And it's so true. And for those individuals who feel like there is more than one correct answer, well, that is giving some props to the item writers. That is giving some props to the peers involved in the item writing process because they have written a question. That is certainly uh, tying some people up. So I think that that gives them some some props for their hard work and and, and what they've done and what they've produced. So that's really awesome. (laughs) <laughs> Another really interesting myth is that the exam gets harder every time someone has to take it or retake it. And some people have even said that we raise the passing score for each attempt. And in truth, we establish the passing standard for each certification program and known as, and we call that the base exam, through a formal cut score study process. And we use the collective judgment of our subject matter expert committees to bring forth a recommended passing standard. That is then approved by the BACB Board of Directors. Every exam form developed after the base form construction is then statistically equated to the base exam to ensure that that difficulty level remains the same. So whether you're taking the exam for the first time, the second time, or the eighth time. Yeah, And we are going to repeat this process to prepare for the launch of the exams that will assess the knowledge, skills, and abilities uh, from the fifth edition task list. So that's coming soon. Right around the corner. On a related note, though, some people have commented that our exams must be norm referenced instead of criterion referenced. And they are actually criterion referenced. This has come up again now that we have moved to on-demand testing for the BCBA and BCABA programs. For those who aren't familiar with these terms, a norm-referenced exam is one where test-taker scores are determined based on how they compare to a reference group. and these types of tests are often used in educational settings, primarily K-12. Reference, or norm group, is usually all first-time test-takers during a particular time frame or in a particular region. Criterion-referenced exams, they have a big standard or cut score that was established by a panel of experts using a formal process, like I described a moment ago. That standard doesn't move or change regardless of who else might be taking the test. So a cohort of students from a school might all pass the exam, or they might all fail. It really depends on the quality of training they got, not how other people are doing The best analogy that sticks out to me to think about when uh, wanting to understand criterion-referenced exams is to think about the signs that you read when you go to an amusement park, when you see those signs that say, must be this tall to ride this ride, with an arrow that's pointing to a specific line on the height chart. The line indicated by the arrow functions as the criterion, the ride operator compares each person's height against it before allowing them to get on the ride. So it doesn't matter how many other people are in line or how tall or short they are, whether or not you're allowed to get on the ride is determined solely by your height. So criterion reference assessments work similarly. An individual score is not affected by the score of other other candidates. So That's a good example. For sure, even with on-demand testing, our exams are still criterion reference. and we have enough statistical data on the questions in our item bank to create equivalent exam forms up front. We use a pre-equating process so that new forms are at the same difficulty level as that base exam. But I can kind of see where this does happen. You know, upon viewing an exam, you c- you cannot tell the difference upon that visual whether it's norm or criterion. So visually, I can tell where that trips people up. Where you can tell the difference is obviously in the scoring. So one last thing in the seventh misconception is why we do not provide those scores to people who pass the exam. So our exam is designed to separate candidates into two groups, those who have learned enough about ABA to practice safely, and those who have not get learned enough. It is not designed to put candidates into rank order above or below the passing score, just to put them into the two groups I've mentioned. If we gave scores to people who passed the exam, those scores might be misused. For example, an employer might decide to hire a person just because they got a slightly higher score on the exam than another person, and that would not be a good basis for a hiring decision.
0: That was a great explanation of norm versus criterion referenced, and I really love the amusement park analogy. Uh, since we have given our listeners a ton of information in this podcast and we're running out of time for this episode, would you mind sharing with everyone the sort of take-home points that you would hope people would remember about the BACB's examinations after having this information?
1: I'd love to. The main takeaway for me or that I want to deliver is is the message that we are working for you. You know, myths and misconceptions can sometimes be detrimental to a process. So we want to debunk any misconception that we aren't working stringently for you or the BACB exams. You know, the testing team has no choice but to uphold firm standards in the work that we do. Our accrediting body stipulates that we work in a certain way, and we take that very seriously. So please know that we have the profession's best interest at heart.
0: Wonderful. As always, we hope this episode is another helpful resource for listeners, trainees, and certificates coming from the BACB. Uh, We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to Inside the BACB. Don't miss future episodes. Subscribe now.